Welcome to Problems with Military Donations. I'm Gordon Blaker. I'm Director Curator of the U.S. Army Artillery Museum out of Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which for those of you that may know something about Fort Sill and its museums, it's a brand new museum. We opened two months ago and we are basically the artillery spin-off of the Fort Sill National Historic Landmark and Museum, which has been around for decades, centuries almost. Oh, um, my sidekick, Myers Brown, will be back shortly. Uh, he's curator of Extension Services and is basically also the military curator for the Tennessee State Museum in Nashville. Oh. Problems with military donations. And how many of you are from military museums? And how many of you are from the other kind of museums, the mixed? Yeah, okay. This session, I'd say, is kind of more for the other museums to help you out with that weird stuff you've got in your collection of a military nature. This, of course, is a Thompson submachine gun, which uh, might be in some of your collections. This is our subject areas. We've got four of them. Um, weapons and destructive devices, things that are connected to federal, state, and local laws. A war trophy policy that applies basically to Iraq. Um, Afghanistan, I don't know but for sure, but is probably exactly like Iraq. Um, and we'll get to that. Safety and, safety and health, and then uh, controversial area, which kind of catch-all. Um, weapons and destructive devices. This all started back during the Great Depression, and Johnny Depp time, public enemies, um, because of gangsters were running around with automatic weapons and shooting up the police very badly because the uh, gangsters were using Thompson submachine guns and Browning automatic rifles, uh, which were uh, just devastating. So um, 1934 was the beginning of it, and then there were additional laws uh, added after that, uh, the main one being in 1968. And class three weapons, that's the term for it, those are automatic weapons. And that's defined basically as any weapon that when you pull the trigger, it keeps shooting, rather than having to pull the trigger for each shot. That's what an automatic weapon is. You pull the trigger and it shoots until it runs out of ammunition. Destructive devices, that's the other category of the uh, laws, and those are things that go boom. Um, and any explosive device, basically, but it also includes things that burn, incendiaries, and poison gas category, or chemical warfare. Uh, bombs of various types, grenades also, rockets that have that propellant charge behind them that's more than four ounces, which is most of them, and missiles, uh, mines, landmines of different types and other mines that you could use for uh, magnetic and purposes like that, and anything similar. So it's a very, very broad category. And this is its definition. Um, you'll see down there at the bottom that it includes everything but the shotgun shell category because the definition would include shotgun shells because of their size. Um, but they are excluded from that as being 
more a hunting sport type item. And if you got questions along here, just raise your hand. <clears throat> These are uh, things that fall into the destructive devices category, so you actually see some examples of what we're talking about. Um, mortars and mortar shells, probably not a whole lot of those in the average museum's collection. Uh, bazookas and bazooka rockets, um, those you may see some of. They're, they're a little more common. Grenades, definitely. Um, soldiers, for whatever reason, tended to like to bring grenades home. And um, a lot of them are completely live. Uh, recoilless rifles and ammunition, not so much. Uh, grenades, mortar shells, bazooka rockets, and everything. Um, if they're inert, they've been totally disarmed, the explosive charges removed from everything they're not considered destructive devices so that's your first step is figure out or get help in figuring out if they're still live hopefully they're not um, some of you may recognize the, the two of these are really common souvenirs the top one is the German potato masher or stick grenade from both World War one and two um, the one in the middle is the uh, very common fragmenta fragmentation grenade of uh, World War II and beyond. And uh, you see a lot of those, plus uh, ammunition, of course. And the, uh, the one there on the bottom left is like a 37-millimeter shell, which is pretty big. Here's the problem. If you've got a Class three weapon, back to the automatic weapons... For it to be legal, it's got to already be registered with the Treasury Department. And if it's not, there's nothing you can really do about that. There's not a way to fix it. Um, they had a uh, amnesty or grace uh, back in the 60s, and they've not had one since. And there's a lot of museums out there that I know have fully automatic weapons brought back from World War I and World War II that are sitting in their collection, and you probably don't even know it. Um, most of those are not legal, unfortunately. Options. Here's ways you can solve the problem. <clears throat> D-Watts. That's the term for deactivated war trophies. Those are um, formerly automatic weapons and other things that have been rendered uh, useless. <coughs> Curios and relics is a curious category um, that I'll talk about more in a minute. Um, that includes a detailed listing of all of the things that fall into the curio and relic category, and those are mainly... Um, war trophy items, and a lot of those are uh, pretty much exempt from the law because the government looks at them as being uh, essentially too old to really be dangerous. And then demilled, that is demilitarization or um, rendering it uh, very um, unfireable. Uh, DWATS. Weapons that have had their uh, bolts welded or otherwise altered to prevent them from firing. 
they're registered like class three weapons with the government, but uh, they're not as restricted. The problem that the government found with these was it was relatively easy for anybody with gunsmithing talents to put them back to fully operational and fully automatic. And so uh, D-Watts, you can't register them, now, them now. And that's, that's the reason why. So they are, although they're a different category, they're, um, they're not something you really want to get into because you can't register them. This is Curio and Relics. This was uh, established in 1968. Basically, it's a firearm that has historic value um, as a war trophy. That's, that's essentially why it was uh, established. It's got to be at least 50 years old. So that's all your World War II weapons at this point, which is uh, real good. Step two, you got to get them certified by a museum. And you'll notice it says Municipal, State, or Federal Museum. So you can't take those to, say, the curator of the National World War II Museum, the D-Day Museum in New Orleans, because they don't fall into that category. So you need to find a state or, say, a military museum of something where the curator is willing to uh, help you out with this and give you a certification that it's a curio and relic category weapon. Um, fortunately, there's a list of these that you can get on the web from uh, the federal government. And then number three there gives you more of a narrowing definition of what those are. Um, tied with a historical figure, period, that's key, World War II, or event. BATF. Everybody know what, who doesn't know what that stands for? You normally just see ATF, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. These are the uh, enforcement people for this type of thing. Um, and they have this list of designated weapons, and here are some of the most relevant to you items that are on that list. All Thompson submachine guns, which is kind of surprising. Original M2 carbines. Um, the M1 carbine of World War II looks just like a short rifle. There is a version of that called the M2. It is identical in appearance. It's fully automatic. It's not like the M1, which is a regular rifle, uh, basically. Um, those are a fully automatic weapon. Uh, but they have been put on the Curio and Relic list. Uh, M1 and M2 mortars, they're just considered old enough that they're not. And BARs and uh, World War II bazookas. Can't see someone running around with one of those. Um, Demilled weapons. This is a process by which you can't take that weapon and put it back to firing condition. Um, and then the second bullet there tells you basically how that's done. You drill a hole through it. So you're 
really weakening the metal in the crucial area of the chamber where the powder is going to go off. So that's something you're not going to be able to fix without replacing that entire key part of the weapon. Um, demilled weapons do not require any sort of federal registration or regulation. Um, and an example of this from my past, I became the first curator of a relatively small museum that was very heavy in weaponry. Um, the person that started the museum uh, was an arms collector, a uh, former OSS agent, and he brought back a lot of weaponry. And I moved weapons from his house to the museum, and he had a huge arms room, had a pool table. I got under the pool table one day and pulled out a MG-42, which is a very awesome World War II machine gun. One of the best machine guns ever made. It's got a rate of fire that's off the charts and everything like that. Um, it later became the example for the American M60 machine gun. There was one of those <coughs> under the pool table. Not only was it live, but it was loaded. He had a belt of live ammunition hanging off this thing. So, um, that was just one of what turned out to be about 10 fully automatic, unregistered, undocumented, un-everything automatic weapons he had. Um, did, did some looking around, talking to local gun collectors and everything, and people that are in the gunsmithing business, and not wanting to have these weapons seized and destroyed or anything, we very quietly um, met with a person that was a very talented gun person, and he demilled those for us in such a manner that you couldn't see it. So we could still exhibit these weapons without, you know, great big, huge, ugly welds and holes in them and everything. So I took my basically illegal weapons and got them into the legal category because um, the ATF, you know, as far as they're concerned, this is all bad stuff. They don't care about its historical relevance, importance, or anything. The solution for such things is to seize it and to destroy it. So, and... As museum people, we don't quite look at things that way. But, you know, keep in mind you would be dealing with a federal bureaucrat. And most of you understand what that means. Part two. Have you all seen these motivational posters? There's a lot of them out there on the net um, making fun of various military things. Current war trophy policy. Now, if you thought that last area was a confusing quagmire, this is another one of those. Okay. Soldiers and units, so individuals and the larger organizations, um, cannot take and keep 
two different things there. You can't take them and you can't have them, um, except as granted by the waivers. And the dividing line there is the 28th of June, 2004. If you've got something that was taken prior to that time, then it's in a different category. And you may be able to keep it. And this is the answer. Once we officially established the new government of Iraq, everything that might be taken in fighting over there becomes property of the new Iraqi government. So, you're, you know, soldiers in a battle gets a weapon that gets returned back to the Iraqi government. Just because you captured it doesn't mean you can have it or keep it or anything. You've got to turn them over to the Iraqis. Um, examples of unauthorized contraband. Um, this list is incredible. Uh, it's essentially everything. And the reason this all came about was the first Iraq war, um, soldiers were bringing back absolutely everything. And a lot of dangerous stuff, a lot of really disgusting stuff, um, and everything like that. It just got really out of control really, really fast. And so the um, military and the government cracked down hard and fast. Um, it, it says, the, the government document said, sensitive religious items. Essentially, after looking at what was on that list, that's any religious items. It doesn't make any difference what it is. Um, you can't get any of that. Any, and you'll notice weapon parts, ammunition parts and fragments, pieces of shrapnel. They're part of this list. That's a huge long list, and it's essentially everything. And uh, a friend of mine had a presentation at this, and his next slide simply said, so what's the point? You, know, you, you just can't hardly get anything. These are the list of <coughs> excuse me, legal uh, war trophies and souvenirs. Um, the catch, of course, being if you get this stuff, you go back to that June 28, 2004 thing. All of this stuff's Iraqi property, so it's got to go back. But if you're prior to that, you're all right but you've also got to be able to prove it. Uh, yep, that's same thing. You've got to get, you know, if you want to bring something back, you've got to get it cleared with both the military and with the customs people. Because if you get it, you get your paperwork done by the Army, say, in Iraq, and with something you want to bring back, the next person you're going to run into, of course, is a customs agent. And they want to uh, have, have all their paperwork straight also. Um, that's, that's the summary. From going through all of this federal documentation, Army paperwork and everything, um, you're not going to get enemy items at this point anymore. Um, 
if you do get them, you're probably going to have to get them from the military, and that's going to be also extremely difficult uh, because the Army doesn't like to just transfer stuff out anymore. They had some real bad experiences with that. Back in the 1960s, they sent probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of weapons out to private museums, um, essentially as gifts, but the government considered them to still be loans. But they didn't really keep any paperwork. And then in the mid-1990s, all of a sudden someone realized that there were all these weapons out there in private museums, and they went, we've got to go find all these. And so they sent out contractors working for the government to track down each and every rifle and everything else that they'd given to uh, VFW posts, private museums and everything. And a lot of these places had closed and stuff had disappeared. I don't know what their rate of finding stuff was, but it was bad. Um, so if, if you want to get stuff from the current conflicts, global war on terror, war in Iraq, Afghanistan, your best way to do that is get stuff coming back that's American from American military that has a nice story to it. You know, this is from Sergeant Wilson from your hometown that he wore in Afghanistan during such and such a period and get the story, get the pictures of the soldier or marine or sailor um, that wore the stuff, you know, if you can get a photograph of him wearing the uniform or wearing the helmet, get stuff like that and use that for your exhibit rather than trying to get, you know, an AK-47 or something of a Islamic nature, say, uh, stay away from those things. So, any questions? No questions? Mm -hmm. Questions generally? Or <coughs> What's that? Just a general question? Yeah. Um, in, as far as, this is for the earlier part. Okay. About, I'm from the First Division Museum at Canteen. Oh. And um, so we're private military. Yes. Um, as far as, we get offers all the time of illegal firearms. We have a class three um, FFL, so so we're okay. But yeah. we get offers of donations that of unregistered automatics, like you know the MG forty two or whatever. Yes. Um, so you're saying it's okay for us to suggest to that donor that you know maybe we could help them demill this firearm and then accept it as a donation. Um, we work really, we have a good relationship with our local ATF office. Uh, they check everything out. Where usually what we do is we'll, uh, we'll suggest to the donor that you surrender that to our local sheriff's office, and then our sheriff uh, decides to uh, store that firearm at our museum. And, and that works very well for us. But you're saying we could also perhaps suggest to a donor that, that if they want to demilitarize. I would, in your case, I'd leave it the way it, the way you've got it working. You have a just perfect situation. Yeah, you've right. got your license. You're very, you, you've got, yeah, right. you've got your license. Yeah. You've got, 
you've got the key item, which is a friendly and cooperative ATF person, because you get all kinds. You get the extreme reactionary that, you know, if it's a gun, it's bad. And then you've got what you've got, which is somebody that's obviously intelligent, common sense, and knows a little bit about history and cares about it. Plus, your museum's got a bit of a super reputation, too. So, um, okay. yeah, so I, I would not. Stick with that. And yeah. in general, I wouldn't really, you know, you don't want to have somebody come into a private museum with a. MP40 German submachine gun from World War II and really suggest that they take it to mill it because they're liable to talk to somebody about that. Okay. Okay. This, this is a dicey subject to say the least. Okay. So, and another thing I didn't mention, the rules are totally different for military museums. Army, Navy, Marine museums, they have a completely different set of rules because they're federal government and military museums. Um, for instance, army museums by regulation are not permitted to um, harm the weapon in any way. The army wants all of their weapons in their collections to be fully operational. Uh, it's the regulation specifically prohibits demilling. But, on the other hand, you've got the Army Museum Regulation, which tells you you can't demill or render useless weapons. And then you've got the Physical Security Regulations. The two don't marry up or match at all. And so you've got, you've got to deal with you know, your counterparts in the Army Museum system, but you also got to deal with these Physical Security people. And they don't fall into the reasonable common sense category from anything I've experienced yet. So, but your situation is just super. Yep. How about the rest of us? The private museums? Do we take it, hmm? do we take it and then email it? Do you have a good firearms friend? Okay. I would talk to them about it. Um, they can advise you as to the historical importance of the weapon and whether or not it's something you want in your collection. Um, you know, if it's something you're never going to use, probably, you know, you really want to mess with all of that. Right. But if it's a good, classic, historical, say it's a MG42 that a Silver Star recipient brought back from Germany in 1945, and that'd be something. Nice, and yeah, I would go that route. But that's another key thing to have someone you know and trust in your local area that you, you can get firearms help from. Um, you can go to them, they can help you with identification, and they can help you with finding that person that could possibly email it if you need to, and things like that. Um, you know, I was in a private museum originally. And I didn't have a choice. I, I had to keep, if I wanted to keep it, I had to under the table demill it. Because if it got found, it was going to get seized and it was going to get destroyed. And it was a historically important World War I weapon. And some of these weapons are really rare. Like 
We don't. That's destroying history. We don't like to do that. Is there a way for weapons? You, I mean, I've been there for 12 years, but some of these things have been there for a lot years. longer. Is there a way to find out if they have been registered without opening a can of worms? No. Unfortunately, there's not. Because if you, you know, think of it, you call up the ATF and say, I've got an MG42 serial number such and such, I need to see if it's registered. They look on the list, it's not registered, you can imagine what the next step is. You get a knock at the door, and uh, they're not going to be interested in the fact that you're a museum and this is a historical object property. They might be, but I really don't think so. When they came trying to get the inventory uh, back in the 90s and so forth, Those were, those were all uh, U.S. military property. So none of the foreign stuff was in that category that I, that I ever saw. Unless it came from the Army to yeah. the museum, and it was then on the Army's list. Uh, and quick, quick thing, too, about curio and relics. Um, I, I'm a curio and relics license holder, and... You know, this what they you, you'd think it'd be a real fancy license it's not they send you a little piece of paper and they tell you to photocopy it and all it really does is it allows you if you're a license holder to buy firearms that are on that list without having to go necessarily through waiting periods and you can actually buy them directly from importers and things like that the curio and relics list, though, is very, very confusing. And don't just assume because something is 50 years old that it's automatically on the list. M1 Garands, for example, are not on the curio and relics list. Why? <laughs> well, a lot of them were sent overseas, used by foreign powers, upgraded, updated, sent back to the U.S. and imported. So a lot of uh, M1 Garands are not, or well, the M1 Garand is not on the curio and relics list. And even the weapons that Gordon listed that are on the Curio and Relics list, that still does not mean that, that, that you can buy them without them being registered. They still have to be registered as automatic weapons, like all the Thompsons. They, they may be on the Curio and Relics list, but I can't take this and go buy one. I still have to have either a Class Three license or get it legally transferred to me, which is a long, expensive process. So it... The, it's, it's very confusing, but the good thing is if you have somebody in your museum, if you're a private museum, they don't license actually museums, but you get somebody on staff to get one of these, um, it will about allow you to buy a couple of, uh, of different types of weapons. But then also the, the ATF, which I, I think now is the ATFE because they've added explosives to their repertoire, um, they will send you this disc that has all of your local and state laws and regulations about firearms. Um, so you can at least familiarize yourself with what your local, and they send you all the federal laws too, but, but this is a, a handy thing to have. Um, I asked Myers about printing it. And, oh, you don't want to. He said, well, we'll just print it and give everybody a copy. And I, well, if you print it, it's like this. That's why they, 
went to this because they used to send you a big printed version of it every year. It's actually two volumes, um, one for federal laws and one for state and local laws, and I, I guess this is more economical for them. Um, something else I was going to say about Curio and Relevance. Don't forget, let me reemphasize state and local laws too because you've got to worry about the federal laws, but you've also got to worry about the state and local laws because if it's fine you know, federally, but it's not fine locally or state, you've still got a problem. Yes? I, I don't work at a museum, but I run a, a field service office for State of Texas, and so we get a lot of calls uh, from museums about guns and all that kind of stuff. It, it sounds to me like you're kind of saying um, don't look for registry, don't take it too far. I mean, it sounds like the best advice is if you want to keep your stuff, don't investigate it. Otherwise, you know, it could just be taken away. You, your, your major concern is going to be automatic stuff. Anything that's semi-auto or um, a um, pre-1890s weapon, you really got very few concerns. Okay. Uh, unless it's in violation of some local law. With federal laws, really, they only mainly concern with fully auto stuff. And, and my experience with the with the ATF has been different from Gordon's. I, I've never had a bad experience with them. Um, in fact, they are have been over backwards to, to help me um, and figure out some things. Now, I've never gone to them and said I need to make sure this gun's registered um, because I, I don't. For one, I have this relationship with them. I don't want to put that agent in the position of having to say. It's not on the list, you know, because he, the, the two I work with in particular, um, they understand the historical importance of these weapons, and it would hurt them to then have to come and get it. So I don't really want to put them in that position. So I've, I've never asked to run a number, but um, you're really talking about anything that might be fully auto that you really going to have to be concerned with. Generally speaking, Again, my experience has been the ATF is not going to come out and seize a bunch of junker <laughs> um, uh, M1 Garands. I mean, they just they, they got bigger fish to fry, especially if it's in a museum and in a secure facility. Now, if it's stuff that's out there and kids are grabbing it up, and eh, they might get a little bit more testy about that. But and again, it depends on which state, you know. I've, Two states I've dealt with. Three states: Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee. You know, we're we have um, much more liberal gun laws than what the federal laws allow. I think in those three states, we would probably require everybody to have an automatic weapon. But um, <laughs> but uh, um, the, the kind of a follow up, I guess. What so? What would happen to a museum that has someone reported them and they did have something and maybe they knew they and, they, and let's say they did know they should have been checking for registry or whatever. They just didn't because they didn't want to open that can of worms. What, what happened? Most likely the gun's going to get seized. Are there any fines or anything? I mean, is Potentially there, there could be, but okay. since you're, you're really talking about not a single individual that would be that responsible person, you know, I, I don't know. That would, that would be up to the, uh, the Justice Department whether they want to really push the issue and, and it would depend on the 
on the type of, of weapon, whether it would be a federal violation or a state or? Most likely. Okay. And if, you know, state could go after you if the federal did too. Sure. I had an interesting conversation a week ago because I was, the guy that I got help from is ATF, but he's not an agent, he's an attorney. And he, uh, he basically said this about agents, that you know, they're, they're not that knowledgeable, they're gonna see it's a gun, and that's all they're caring about. Uh, he said, so talking to them is not necessarily a good idea, but it all depends on you know who your agent is, and you know it'd be just a matter of getting to know that person and see what they're like. And like uh, I made some inquiries about we were intending on getting an ATF agent here this morning, and I checked with some people up here, and they said, "Don't do that. Not in Indianapolis." <laughs> said you got a real zealot here <laughs> so um, and it just it depends on the personality and one thing I would think if it uh, if you're a county museum or something is would it fit your storyline of your museum I mean if you're a I'm just kind of throwing out something if you're a toy museum what are you doing with the machine or like with you obviously yeah, you know, that's the place for you. Or like with me at the Missouri National Guard Museum or at the UNK in Kentucky and all that, that's kind of goes with our, our, our storyline that, oh, okay, well, yeah, you guys, it kind of makes sense. You're going to have guns. But if, you know, your thing really isn't the weapons, then, yeah, that would throw up the flags. Why is this place taking guns? And that's really not their thing. Yeah, just give me your card and email it to Um as an extension agent, you, you've got a tough job because you've got so many museums that have so many potential problems in well, this area. They're, they're mostly small and they have everything. I mean, you know, they've been around for years and years and they have a little bit, most of the museums we work with, Myers knows, um, has a little bit of everything. So, oh, yes. you know, yeah, there, there are just a lot of situations out there and most of them don't have a lot of money either. A lot of them are very, are volunteer run you know, so um, you don't want to you don't want to tell them, okay, you're going to have to do this and this and this and this, and it can open up, you know, all these problems. But you also want to give them the best advice. I mean, you just want to give them the best advice that that you can, but you don't want to um, be the be the reason why yeah. everything gets seized or you know something like that. So. Right. My advice would be to call Myers. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is is. Since Texas is going to secede anyway, y'all won't have to worry about federal laws. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk mainly about some safety, security, health issues associated with military artifacts. And this is kind of falls in the three main areas that I would say be concerned with. I'm going to talk about security and limiting risk as we go through the, the first three. But one is loaded weapons. Live ammunition of all types, which would include artillery rounds and small arms ammunition and all sorts of things. Chemicals and adverse interreactions between <clears throat> different types of objects that can be potentially harmful to you and to the object. Um, 
we've all heard this phrase, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, actually, it's the ammunition that kill people. Um, guns in themselves are not dangerous. They're just metal and wood and sometimes plastic and other types of devices put together. It's a machine. What makes them dangerous is when you put the ammunition in them. Um, and you know, I go into a lot of these small museums, and they're run by this little lady who's a volunteer, and she's absolutely scared to death to even touch the gun. And, you know, you try to emphasize it's only dangerous if it has ammunition in it. So the first thing to do is, and if they do have ammunition, obviously they're very, very, are they very extremely dangerous, but the main thing to do is make sure it's not loaded. And that's the first thing you do when a piece comes into the museum is make sure the weapon is not loaded. In fact, uh, Gordon and I taught a workshop uh, with uh, the World War I Museum and AASLH over the summer, and the uh, curator at the National World War I Museum said he got a great donation in the mail. He was just, you know, pawing over this German pistol that was sent in, and he said, suddenly it dawned on me, I better make sure it's not loaded. Well, sure enough, he dropped uh, the magazine out, and it was a fully loaded magazine, and there was one in the chamber, and the guy had shipped it that way. Um, and, you know, most of us who deal with firearms, we have sense enough not to do something like that. But since you don't know where this thing has been, who's had it, um, and you might have little old grandma who finds grandpa's pistol he brought back from the Second World War, and she just sends it to the museum. She doesn't, she's never checked it. She doesn't know how to check it. And you get it, and sure enough, it's loaded. Uh, and until you have determined it is unloaded, treat it like it is. And that's just common sense. It gets to be a little bit more tricky um, when you get the further back you go to determine if a weapon is loaded. These are, of course, Civil War era muskets, uh, rifle muskets and, and, and uh, uh, converted muskets. It's very difficult to tell if these things are loaded. You know, with a modern weapon, you can pull the bolt back, you can drop a magazine out and tell pretty quickly if there's something down the barrel. This is a little bit more difficult because the only way to check it is to actually pull a ramrod or uh, pull perhaps a wooden dowel and drop it down the barrel. And if it makes a, a ting sound, that's good. That means the barrel is empty. If it makes a kind of a thud sound, that means there's something in the bottom of the barrel. Now, it may just be 150 years of dust accumulated in the bottom of it, or more likely, it may still have something still down the barrel, which creates another problem. If it actually is loaded, how do you get that out? And that becomes a little bit more tricky because you have to use what they call a worm, and actually worm the round out. The only other way that you really get it out of there is to actually fire the weapon. Now, I don't advise you to take an original uh, musket from the Civil War period that you know nothing about and go out and try to clear it by firing it. Um, so you're left with, with few options except to really uh, maybe get it to a local gunsmith who may have a little bit of expertise in black powder weapons, and that becomes very important too. Uh, gunsmiths kind of have their areas of expertise. Some are very good with black powder weapons. Some only want to deal with modern weapons. Uh, so you, you want to find somebody who does have some experience dealing with, with black powder muzzle-loading firearms. 
and loaded Civil War weapons come through the door every single day at museums. Uh, it, it's not unusual. And it may not be a real Civil War round. It may be that somebody used it for hunting after the war. Um, but it, it can have powder and shot and uh, a mini ball and all sorts of things in it. I will say this. If you worm the round out and you get the powder out of that, I encourage you to bag it and save it. Uh, for a good example is we have pulled rounds out before only to find them that the, uh, the paper cartridge was made out of newspaper from the time period. You know, so you may see an 1880s piece of newspaper stuck down in the barrel. So it can help you actually figure out when it was last used. These are, uh, again, kind of talking about uh, loaded weapons. These are from Gordon's uh, installation in Augusta. Um, you've got a fully auto weapon down here in the M3 grease gun. You've got an M1 carbine and a, uh, a 45 pistol. Uh, you do need to learn how to check these things, uh, learn how they're loaded and unloaded. There are manuals that teach you how to do this, but there are also, again, as Gordon mentioned, there are your local gunsmiths and gun collectors who can probably help you with this as well if you do not have, know how to do it yourself. Live ammunition is a particularly interesting problem. Um, old ammunition can still be very active, still very good, uh, but it can also be potentially unstable, especially the primers in modern cartridges in particular. Uh, I say modern, anything in the cartridge era. Uh, fuses can be unreliable and unstable. A lot of people have the inclination as well, if it's live ammo, we probably should just destroy it. I argue, on the other hand, that it is a valuable historical resource and probably should be retained. Anybody here from the National Park Service? Good, I can talk about them. Um, I had a call when I was working in Atlanta from Kennesaw Mountain National Military Park. They were doing a new Civil War installation. They had a completely unopened bundle of Confederate-made cartridges. Harper's Ferry was telling them you cannot put any live ammunition in a case. You have to render it inert. The only way to render that ammunition inert is to open up those bundles and pour the powder out, which is, in essence, destroying the artifact. As long as nobody was going to smoke around that cartridge or drop a match into those cartridges, they're pretty much not going to do any harm to the museum, to the case, or anything else. I don't know what the end result was. I told them my thoughts on it, which they, the curator was what she wanted to hear, but was also facing extreme opposition from the other side of things in the Park Service. Um, by comparison, these are all Civil War original paper cartridges, still with their original powder charges in them, in the Atlanta History Center's collection, which is a private, nonprofit museum. These are very, very valuable historical documents. And if you are faced with a situation where you have to render these things inert and you do have to open up the cartridge, please save the powder. Bag it, put it in a secure site, but don't just destroy it. 
and, and my thought on this is that somewhere down the road, the better the technology gets, we're going to be able to determine, I think, where actual cartridges and cartridge powder and the powder for cartridges was made simply on being able to do the chemical analysis on it. And if you have rendered all the Civil War era cartridges inert and destroyed all the powder, we're going to have no examples. We're going to, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, but again, it, it's going to depend on what your situation is. Gordon's already talked about uh, uh, some of these photographs, or some of the things in these photographs here. Probably these things you do want to render inert because they are very, very dangerous, and it only takes uh, some unknowing volunteer to pull a pin and destroy <laughs> themselves and a good chunk of your museum. Uh, but if you do render something inert, be sure you notate it in your records because 30 years from now, somebody's going to come down the road re re replacing you and go, I wonder if that's inert or not. I don't know, so I'm just going to destroy it. So make sure it does get recorded. Um, another thing about live ammunition, you never want to store it in an unsecure location or with the firearms. That's just a good policy. Um, we're going to look at security issues towards the end of this. Um, again, if you have inert ammunition, make sure that your records indicate such. Know what is in your collection and know how it works because that depends very much on how you treat these things. This is a collection of Civil War artillery shells. They are treated much differently than a bazooka round. Um, a number of instances in the last couple of years where Civil War artillery shell collectors have done a great deal of damage to themselves by blowing themselves up, messing with Civil War artillery shells, but have also done a great disservice to the museum and the collecting community by, by their own stupidity. Um, what they were doing, in one instance, a guy was trying to render an artillery shell inert by removing the fuse and in the process of tapping it with a hammer, made it explode and, of course, killed him. Uh, but what did the local bomb squad do? What was their response? They came in, seized his entire collection because they don't know what's, what's dangerous and what's not dangerous, and they destroyed his entire artillery shell collection, some of which were extremely rare pieces. Um, Civil War artillery in particular, uh, which uh, probably a lot of people end up having in their collection, uh, a solid iron ball is absolutely not dangerous. It was never designed to explode. It's just a, it's, it was called solid shot, and that's what it is. Meanwhile, there was another shell that looks very similar, and it actually was shell. It was a hollow. It had a powder charge in it, sometimes with projectiles within. It is only dangerous and only explodes if the fuse is still in place. And if the fuse is gone and all the powder has been dumped out, it too is very, very safe, and there's no reason you can't have it and, and uh, exhibit it. Uh, what you really have to look out for, particularly in artillery shells uh, from the Civil War period, are things that still have their fuses in place. And it can be very, very difficult to remove them. There are people that will do it for you. Um, there is a, uh, a fellow who uses a remote drill uh, to drill out uh, primers and fuses out of artillery shells. 
to render them inert, um, but um, he doesn't advertise that. You kind of have to know who he is and how to find him. He's got all his fingers, too. Yes, he does. Chemicals. Uh, I, and I, I got the Gordon's World War I guy here as a, a picture because that, that is actually the largest war where chemicals were used to any large extent. Um, but you have to be very, very cautious about what some of these things, how they've been exposed to certain types of things in their history. Most of the things that were exposed to chemical agents in the First World War never made it back to the United States because the, the stuff was smelly and it was dangerous then. So it was destroyed in the, in the field, in theater. Um, but you may have other things that have been treated with chemicals, like, for example, in the Second World War, uh, they impregnated uh, American uniforms with an anti-gas agent. Uh, and even though most of that stuff was issued out later and destroyed, you never know what some of these surplus divers are going to dig up. And somebody may dig up a whole crate of that stuff and send it back. Now, it's probably not dangerous to you, but it can be dangerous to other things in your collection uh, because it's going to continue to off-gas those materials for who knows how long. It could be decades. Uh, so you want to treat those things keep them in a way that you keep them separated and isolated. You will know when you have that stuff. It will have a peculiar smell to it. It won't smell like a regular textile. Most textiles that come in, um, into our place anyway, they either smell like an attic, a basement, or mothballs. Um, <laughs> so if they don't smell like one of those three things, you might be a little cautious about it. Uh, sometimes they smell like cedar, but, but that's, that's kind of rare. Um, it will also tend to have a brittleness and a stiffness to it that you will recognize. Uh, another thing, of course, this is a white phosphorus grenade, smoke grenade. Uh, those are dangerous uh, as well. Uh, not, only that, not only are they dangerous in their own right if somebody pulled the pin, but... Uh, they can be dangerous and simply in the reaction that's going on within the canister itself. And over the long term, uh, we don't really know. They, they could erode the cans themselves, so you, you want to treat those with caution. And one you probably don't recognize as being dangerous, but actually is, are old sea rations. Um, the chemicals that were used to preserve these delicious sundry items um, are actually, in many cases, creating gases within the cans, and they can explode. Um, they can also begin to erode the cans. Uh, so this tells you somewhat about how, what kind of food we were feeding, fe uh, feeding our American soldiers, uh, but, but they are potentially dangerous. And if you have these in the collection, uh, don't just have them sitting in the drawer right next to... Uh, uh, great-great-grandma's uh, 1940s wedding dress because when this can of beans explodes, it's going to ruin everything in the drawer. Uh, so make sure you have it sealed up. Uh, treat it with caution. Uh, at some point, you may just want to drill a small hole in the bottom of it very delicately and drain the contents out. Again, though, in that doing that, you are destroying the artifact. But at some point, you have to except one or the other. Um, I found this out about the hard, the, the hard way. I, as, a, as a child, uh, playing Army like I guess probably every, every child did, as a, every male child at least, I had a complete 
set of sea rations from the Vietnam area that had been bought at the uh, Army surplus. They had been stored in the attic, and I, I go up there to retrieve them and only find out that, um, that stuff had exploded all over the attic. Interesting to note, there were several dead mice around it, too. <laughs> Again, um, a testament to what we're feeding uh, American soldiers. Now, um, Gordon, I think we talked about MREs a little bit, too. Yeah, uh, same problem. Same problem. Uh, and you may have to remove the MREs, save the packaging, replace it with the packaging with Ethafoam or something like that, so it still looks like a full MRE, but again, a potential dangerous, uh, not necessarily dangerous that it's going to kill you, but dangerous to your collection. Um, uh, and just like any other object that you don't know its history, you, you, I, I always tell people when doing workshops on handling objects, you wear gloves not only to protect the object, but to protect yourself. Um, you don't know what sort of chemicals have been applied to things, what it is, where it has been stored. Um, the exposure that some of these things have experienced can be very, very dangerous. So just, just wear gloves. And sometimes you might want to wear a mask, um, and sometimes you might want to put on a complete Tyvek suit. Um, case in point, a friend of mine was the registrar at the Holocaust Museum for a while, and they get in a whole collection of stuff, only to realize the whole collection had been exposed to chemicals that were used uh, in the concentration camps that were very, very dangerous. So, you know, that just be very, very cautious, know what you've got, and take precautions. Security. We've talked about keeping your ammunition in a secure place, keeping it removed from the weapons. This is uh, one of our weapons storage cabinets at the Tennessee State Museum. Um, we take weapons security very seriously. Uh, to get to this weapons cabinet, you first, all, first of all have to have an access card to get into collection storage. That's the first layer of security. The next layer of security is you have to know the combination to get into the key box. That's layer number two. Once you get into the key box, you have to know which key opens the bigger cage that surrounds the weapons case. Once you are inside of the cage, you then have to have the correct key to open the, the gun storage cabinets. It's only three of us, four of us actually, that have access to the weapon storage cabinets. Um, most everybody else just is either scared of weapons or don't care anyways. But, but anyway, it, that's, that's the kind of how we deal with it. Um, we have our ammunition stored in a separate, smaller safe uh, within the building. It's still in collection storage, but not directly in the same cases with, with the weapons. Uh, this is another locking case when we're transporting, transporting handguns uh, that we use. We can lock them in this little case. Of course, you'd look like a double knot spy, as, a, as Jethro Bodine would say. Uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, that, that's an added security when we're transporting handguns for, for loan to other institutions or for our own traveling exhibits. Um, 
Anybody have, have any questions about anything? One yes. thing I've wondered about would be I have a lot of uh, radio equipment, and I've, some people say, oh, you need to really worry about the luminescent dials with any radiation from that. So, yeah, you're chuckling on that. So uh, that's one thing I've wondered about. There, for those of you who do not know, there there is um, small amounts of um, uranium were used to make dials uh, glow, uh, particularly in the Second World War, uh, and it does emit small amounts of radiation. For the most part, it's not enough to be dangerous. If you're really concerned about it, you know, you might put it in a lock cabinet, you know, so that it's not emitting radiation, but uh, for the most part, those are not, not going to do enough, release enough radiation to do serious damage. Uh, it will, though, be picked up, just so you know, if you're trying to transport these things, uh, they can be picked up and will be picked up by uh, Homeland Security. <laughs> uh, it, it, it does release enough radiation that they pick it up. Uh, there have been a, a number of guys who have tried to import uh, radiation dials from the collector's market that have been recovered in from European sources, and they can't get them through customs because of that. Um, and so I don't know what the end result of those things is. They probably are destroyed. But, uh, but yeah, that is another potential, potential risk. Uh, we have an additional risk in Tennessee because we have Oak Ridge, and we collect material from the, from the Oak Ridge Secret City project, and... and um, we, we don't really run a Geiger counter over anything to make sure that it's not radioactive, but, but we run that risk as well. Um, we've, we've never really encountered anything that's potentially dangerous, but uh, uh, we also have, had a chemical plant in the Second World War that we collect material from as well. And um, again, most things that would have been exposed to the chemicals that were made there have probably already destroyed themselves simply because of the chemicals involved. But uh, yeah, those are another little areas to kind of be cautious of. Well, our signal battalion was deactivated and everything, and so I got a lot of their, their old equipment. And one of the sergeants said, oh, yeah, this is World War II. Yeah, you may not want to sit too close to it, because he had goes in our, and he's just joking. What? So I kind of looked it up, and so that's what I wanted to ask today. Yeah, generally speaking, yeah, again, your radiation release from that is not, you probably get more radiation from sitting out on a sunny day than you get from those things. something that, for all intents and purposes, is a real gun, regardless of whether it will fire or not, um, the kid is going to end up in all sorts of trouble, if not 
killed by an overzealous police officer who sees a live gun, and, and somebody's not going to know the difference at at, uh, at 50 yards. Um, I, I would I would keep as tight a control on that collection as I would uh, anything that's live. And, 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 it, and it even goes further than that. And, and you're talking about weapons that, for all intents and purposes, are modern weapons. I, I've done some education courses on black powder safety with local museums and historical sites. And what they let kids do with black powder weapons is extremely scary, a lot of them. A lot of people think, well, just you know, it's a flintlock, it's a Civil War weapon and you're just firing black powder through it, it's not dangerous. That's not the case. You can easily do serious damage with a blank round from a flintlock. Um, there was one institution in particular, they were allowing the kids to actually fire Civil War era pistols and just hand them the pistol and saying, go at it. Uh, anybody that knows anything about Civil War era pistols, they're more dangerous than the muskets. And all it took was one kid to all of a sudden decide he wasn't going to shoot down range and start shooting at essentially point-blank range at all the other kids in the summer camp. And you got 15 blind and deaf kids, um, if not worse. And, and uh, uh, they're they still very, very dangerous is the bottom line, and they need to be treated as such. Um, and that really... I had the executive director sitting in the training course. Found out later he's still letting the kids do it, despite me getting on my soapbox for about 20 minutes. I, you know, I just <laughs> I don't understand why you want to run that risk. It's just in bayonets, the same thing. Uh, just takes a kid with a bayonet to turn around and stab one of his classmates. Um, Potentially more damage than a, than a musket would. And if you had volunteers, do roles ever change um, in some extra Like, I know Sparks Fighter volunteers, but I think that they're going to have that. Anybody else? I have a question regarding ammunition in the collection. Um, we have some ammunition from uh, bolt action World War II rifles, and uh, you mentioned they could still be active. Um, the, the main thing I've noticed is that the primers over time in the, in the base of the cartridge are much less reliable. Um, I, kind of as an experiment one time, I bought up a bunch of British World War II era ammunition. It was real cheap. <coughs> I thought, well, I'm going to go see what, what this stuff does uh, after 50 years of storage. And uh, I took it out and took it out to, uh, to the range we have on our farm and uh, the main thing is the ammunition would still go is that the, the delay in the primer you'd have to hold it up there for a good 10 or 15 seconds sometimes just to make sure that it was going to go off and sometimes they didn't sometimes the primers had completely failed um, now if it's in your storage area and that's it's probably you're not going to do any damage. I mean, if you're keeping it dry 
and, and keeping it away from heat sources and keeping it secure, I wouldn't be too concerned about it spontaneously exploding or anything like that. But um, it, it is, you know, a potential concern area. But again, keep it isolated, keep it away from other things, and keeping it away from heat is going to be the major concern about it. Um, Many gunsmiths have the tools to pull, you know, the pull the primers. Normally, what I do is I'll pull the, the bullet first for a cartridge, empty out the powder, because that's the only thing I have to worry about. If, you know, if it goes off, is the primer just going to like pop the, the powder and like, boom. So pull out the lead bullet, dump out the powder. Um, if it's old enough or whatever to keep, but usually by World War II, you're not going to figure anything and dump it out. And Again, I wouldn't be smoking a cigarette while I'm doing anything. But, uh, that's yeah, what we actually had on the uh, military history of uh, affinity groups F, uh, listserv, somebody posted a question about uh, the small museum had gotten in a pack of 45 ammo and what to do with it. And I said, well, I think the general response was is that if you're going to put it on exhibit, um, it's probably okay, but it might be safer just to get the rounds out of the box and just put the box on exhibit because the public's not going to know the difference between a full box and an empty box. Um, and, you know, just replace the box with a, a, a block of ethyphone that's the same size and and and. Uh, put the ammo in storage and if you're really concerned about it, you know, just toss it. The, most of your World War II era ammo is not that rare and not that collectible. There are exceptions. You know, there are certain guys that collect certain arsenal stamps on certain types of ammo. But what, where you really get concerned is some of this early uh, cartridge ammunition that is very collectible, like for Spencer carbines or Spencer ammunition from the Civil War period, or Maynard cartridges, uh, Burnsides, burn uh, Henry rounds are out through the roof now. Um, you do not want to really even mess with those, I mean, unless you're going to do some serious damage to it. And you probably don't even want to remove the powder. Um, just put them in a secure place and keep them under flex and. Most of the time, you're going to be okay. Depending on the 
can and what it's looking like. I've, what you can do is because the, the label is on the top, you know, it says such as, you know, ham and beans or whatever. Flip it over and you can open the bottom and empty it out and everything. And a lot of them corrode and ooze terribly. And MREs, the brown packet ones of the 70s, 80s, 90s and beyond, they, they just start swelling. some weird things. And then K-rations, World War II dry rations, they're incredibly attractive to bugs and insects and things that will get in them. And I had a C-ration in one museum that it got in there and basically just eaten everything. And there was nothing but the, the outer cardboard container left and a few shreds inside. It was just incredible. So there was very little I could salvage out of that mess, unfortunately. But rations make great exhibit items and everything, because everybody's interested in seeing what they were eating during different, you know, different periods. The bottom line is that despite all the modern technology, the still the most durable thing is civil war heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we always wear gloves and everything and all that, but I mean, should we be keeping it very separate from all our other collections or as long as it's the, bad? The, there's a, a major problem with medical kits and that there's no real easy way to dispose of the contents that really should be uh, gotten rid of. Um, I had a, a fellow who brought in a, uh, a captured Japanese medical kit. His father brought it back from the Second World War. It was complete, and it had supplies in it that the Japanese had imported in the 1930s, before the war began, and so the labels were in Latin, Japanese, and English. So I was able to figure out what the contents were. Well, there's six bottles of morphine there that are full, and yeah, he didn't give it to us, and I was glad. <laughs> Because I didn't want, want to have to figure out what to do with it. Because, again, you're faced with that problem. If I, first of all, how do I get rid of morphine? Um, second of all, in order to get rid of it, I've got to open up the containers, which is, in essence, destroying the artifact. And it turned out, after some conversations with this guy, he's a pharmacist. And so, legally, he could actually have that stuff, you know, as long as he had filled out the paperwork, he could retain it, which actually turned out to be a pretty good thing for him. But um, you know, there are all kinds of weird chemicals that you're going to encounter with medical kits. I, I'm glad you brought it up because I completely forgot about it. Civil War medical kits that come in with all types of potentially dangerous things, in it, including mercury, um, arsenic, uh, any number of things can be in a Civil War medical kit that are very, very, very dangerous. And we had an instance when I was in Atlanta, we had several Civil War era medical kids. And, um, and that was many, many years ago, and we called the center 
for disease control since they were right next door and said, what, what do we do? And their, content, their, their comment was, well, how much of it is there? And they said, well, you know, there's just little bits in the bottoms of some of the bottles and some of it's dried up. And they said, well, if it's not in a large amount, they said, flush it down the toilet. Now, they, they probably wouldn't do that now because there's all this stuff on the news about not even flushing your, your own uh, prescriptions down the toilet anymore, but, but that's what they told us then, so there's probably some fish in the Chattahoochee that were killed by mercury, but um, that's what they told us to do, and we did it with the most dangerous stuff. The rest we kept in the bottles, put the bottles in Ziplocs, and put them, built little ethophone containers to hold them in so that they wouldn't get knocked over, broken, and, and just kind of hope for the best. But, but medical kits are almost a, and what to do with the contents becomes almost another completely different talk. But it is a, a major issue. Pharmacist is the best person to talk to about okay. those things. Get, just get a Navy pharmacist to take a look at what you've got and help you out with that. We ended up with some smallpox vaccine. Donated. They thought that was really cool. And they were like, what in the heck are we going to do with smallpox vaccine? And we ended up at University of Chicago Medical Labs would take care of it. But you know, it was like we kept the box and did the other phone thing and took it. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Stuff if you want to use it for exhibit, is you can remove the dangerous inner component and just exhibit the outer component that has a label on it, usually smallpox vaccine. That way you kind of get around that problem. Anybody got anything else? Anybody got any suggestions they want to throw out for next year in the military category? What do you need? No, but we're both in the military history. Chairman and everything, and we do workshops and just try to come up with ideas of what museums out in the field are needing help with. Um, oh, let me mention the AASLH website has a military history tab. You can go in there, and the bibliography is in there. The bibliography is designed for regular museums. It's not designed for military museums. There are there is no single book there just on the Thompson submachine gun. There's a book on all firearms made after 1900. It's the bibliography's purpose is to help you with identification. You know, you got an old uniform, you got an old medal. These are things you can go to. Uh, right now, the bibliography is American in nature. Um, starting to work on a foreign one, which is incredibly more challenging, you might say. Uh, and then we're going to be adding another one on there, which will be something like called the Essentials, which will be a very, very short bibliography, which is basically if you can only buy one book on swords, what book should you get? Or one book on uniforms. This is the best, single, most comprehensive book in that given subject area. So it's just an aid to help you figure out things and you know you could go to the library and find some of these a lot of you can find and use uh, 
websites and things like that. You can get in touch with either one of us if you need help with identification on anything. I do it obviously free for just fun. Okay, so you can send me your photos of the thing and I'll hopefully be able to tell you what it is and if I can't figure it out, I'll send it. Well, and I don't charge you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, the other thing about the Military History Affinity Group, there is a listserv, and if you have something that you have a question about, you can certainly post it on there, and that goes to all of the people that are officially part of the, the Affinity Group, and they will help you figure out what you've got, but any sort of questions, um, events that you think the group may be interested in, you're welcome to post there. Um, if you all you have to do to join the military history affinity group is join the listserv and you're automatically a member of it. Uh, and don't forget to fill out your little yellow sheets so we can find out what we did wrong. Right? All of that. If you got any, yeah. I just um, I think it's a huge challenge for us to interpret uh, the, the current conflict without objects. I mean, I I would love to see that discussed at some point because people come to our museum to see. Tell you what we have done. Um, we're running out of time, but anyway, uh, I, I have several of my friends who are in active duty, and I've said, "When you get back, would you please give us everything you carried? You know, um, if you can." And most of these guys are are officers, so they you know, they have a little bit more leeway about giving their stuff away than unless the guys who have to turn stuff back in. But um, I would start trying to make contact through individuals and putting the bug in their ear. Because I think a lot of them probably don't even, they just think, well, nobody wants this stuff. You know, and so I think if you just let them know that you're interested in it, you probably get a good response. Yeah, you will get a good response because cases where people are just done that, you know, you get whole soldiers, everything, along with, you know, stories, photographs. You can do a great package, but you are doing it just from one side of the conflict. Without my card, I promised you a card. Oh, yes. Uh, how long are you guys going to be here? I'm running to my room real quick and get cards. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go upstairs and pack up. Okay, I'll be right back. All right. I would love a copy of the presentation. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. We just loved it. Do you want to handle it or do you want me to handle it? I can Well, we've got your email, Meyer, so if you've got a copy of it, we'll just we'll harangue you for it.
Thanks a lot. Thank you. Let me get a cup of breeze, but I don't have a card with me. Oh, well, I'll just go do that. <laughs> you want to do Yeah, that's fine. Do both of you have cards? Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, the, the fellow who was supposed to do this session with us who didn't show was going to talk about the remains. It's funny when you make well, I think I might have some things to send you. Just sure. Get backdoor identification. I got a whole big black box. Well, we're we, we're a local history museum. And most of us do because we want to turn it into something we want to Really? Yeah, so a, lot of, a lot of people with deployments, they don't want like us to turn all this stuff back in because I'm not an expert enough. I guess it's been used and they don't care to have it back. Okay. I subscribe to the philosophy of you never have enough books. Right. He who dies with the most books wins. Right. Nowadays, connections as well. Was in Afghanistan. Was oh, Charles. Hey. Thank you. Both of them fall through. We're gonna Where did uh, good old Captain Orlando go? Uh, yeah, she is and, uh, in uh, actually, Georgia at Fort Benning. And I just hired a new captain to replace her. And so I'm going to be trying to get him back in. That's what happens, you know, when they hire somebody here from the I think the neatest thing I've had discovered and sent up to the museum is mine grenade training aid thing with the manual. That's probably rather rare. But the sad thing is, it had been sitting in the basement of their armory, and it got wet. So the manual, yeah, you got the manual, but it's all molded and stuck together. But all the pieces. Try and see the manual. I put in the deep freeze to fill the mold and all that. Okay, thank you. The guy said, you know, we got a new sergeant in. He's like, ooh, this looks neat. And so, wasn't on the books. Old Rolls Royce. Yeah, they have um, a bunch of old Allison engines, aircraft engines. Uh, I was volunteering with them over the summer. Old Rolls Royce. Yeah, I saw your shirt while you're sitting there. I thought, wow. So you're from Rolls Royce? Well, I volunteered there over the summer. I don't work there, but I work volunteered in the museum.